Hey, get your Bibles out and turn to Second Chronicles, if you would, please. Second Chronicles. I'm going to be reading out of uh, Second, Chron- Second Chronicles, yes, chapter 29 here in just a moment. We've been teaching a new series that we called Saturation. I believe it's on the screen overhead. What our nation and our lives really need. And this instructional series has been about helping you to understand how God brings His presence into our lives and how God moves in what most of us would refer to as revival. You know, you can't pray for that which you don't understand. And we need to begin to understand the concepts of revival. And so uh, if you want to catch up, again, you can go to iTunes and uh, you can download the message from iTunes. Uh, We talked last week on a message that we entitled A Miracle in a Graveyard. And so if you want to catch up and understand kind of our perspective, you can do it that way. And that will save me from a, a lengthy review. But I will say this, that I have defined or I have taken the definition that Duncan Campbell used, who was a part of a revival that moved through Scotland years ago. I've taken the definition that he chose to use and kind of used it as my own definition as well, trying to communicate what revival is. And he said that revival is a community, and that's the word you need to underline, a community saturated with God. A community saturated with God. And we mentioned to you last week that revival was not some impractical spiritual pursuit. But to be candid with you, the most practical thing all of us need in our life and in our nation is the presence of God. Because if you have the presence of God, every need will be met. How many of you know that God has no needs? I think it was C.S. Lewis that once said, for God to be God, he has no need. For every need that he has, he meets in himself. And that's true. God is not needy. So whenever his presence shows up, every need is, is met in him. And it's not impractical. It's not some ethereal, nebulous, spiritual pursuit. But revival can be something intensely practical to you and what's going on in your life. Now, again, you can catch up and listen to everything I said last week via the web. Now, you need to understand this, that, that we can read history, and I love history. But there are no two moves of God that are ever exactly the same in history. Now, I believe that the reason God never does the same thing twice in exactly the same way is because he does not want us to reduce him to some formula. He doesn't want us to reduce him to just a template that if we can figure out the template and just kind of put the template on our life, he automatically is forced to come. I, I believe God is, is a person and he wants to be pursued. But having said that, I also recognize the fact that there are certain things, whether it's biblical or historical, that seem to be featured in everyone that experiences God in an amazing way. Or a church that might experience revival. Or a nation that is somehow impacted by revival. And so, I want to read to you out of Second Chronicles 29 about a guy by the name of Hezekiah. And I've called the message this morning, Repairing the House. Last week was Miracle in a Graveyard. This morning is Repairing the House. Second Chronicles 29. Uh, keep your Bibles open because I'm going to move through this chapter, but I'm only, only going to read to you three verses to get started here. And this is what we read. It says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. Is that not amazing? And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he, meaning Hezekiah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Now, his father was actually Ahaz, but what the Bible means is is that he had the heart of David. That David was his spiritual mentor, father, example. But it says that Hezekiah did what was right. Now, The reason that's in the scripture I'm going to mention in just a moment is because very few people were doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse three, and in the first year of his reign, in the first month, the Bible says he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And I'm going to stop right there. He opened up the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. Now, I I read to you here 
an introduction to one of the few kings, whether it be in Israel or whether it would have been in Judah. And as you'll recall, I told you that after Solomon, the kingdom divided. In fact, the kingdom divided under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. I called them the Boam boys. But these two boys divided the kingdom after Solomon. and There became a northern kingdom, which the Bible most of the time referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which oftentimes in Scripture is referred to as Judah. So there was Israel and there was Judah. The kingdom had divided and they had two separate lines of kings over both these two areas. And so as you're reading the Scripture, you have to be somewhat careful because you'll start reading about these kings and you need to be sure, is this a northern kingdom king or is this a southern kingdom king? And and we're in the southern kingdom right now. We're in Judah right now because the northern kingdom had no reforming kings. Or if they did, it was just for such a short period of time, it amounted to nothing. Um, And so consequently, the northern kingdom collapsed much sooner than the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom endured because there were several kings along the way that had a heart for God. And because they had a heart for God, God gave them longevity. And so Hezekiah was one of the kings of the southern kingdom who had a heart towards God. And and out of that, God begins to give that nation longevity. Now, the Bible tells us he was only 25 years old when he became king. And we know not really very much about his growing up years, except that his father was a guy by the name of Ahaz. And the Bible says that his mother was Abijah. Now, what we know about Ahaz is this. He was one of the most wicked kings that you will find in all of Scripture. In fact, he's up there in the top one, two, three kings. If you want to know one of the top three wicked kings, Ahaz would have been one of them. And what fascinates me when I think about that is, is that it tells me when I look at the life of Hezekiah is that you're not a victim of your environment. Come on. His dad was one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history. But Hezekiah, his son, ends up being a revivalist reformer king. And it tells me that Hezekiah had to arise and overcome what I am sure were overcoming challenging circumstances. Can you imagine growing up in a home that's just not that's just not lost, but we're talking about antagonistic. He grew up in a household with his environment being totally poised against him. And yet he becomes a nation changer. Now, let let me just share with you what Ahaz and his wife Abijah were doing. They were literally, they worshiped Molech, which literally meant that they would sacrifice their children to this demon God, which meant that Hezekiah's brothers and sisters were being sacrificed on an altar of fire to demons. It was Ahaz who built the high places to worship false gods. Don't you know that that Ahaz probably forced Hezekiah as in his growing up years to listen to the chants and the instruction and the teaching of all the false gods of Assyria? I mean, it was Ahaz that closed the temple, boarded up the doors. It was Ahaz who set up shrines to these false gods. Listen to me, on every street corner, there were literally kiosks that were set up, shrines that were set up to worship these false gods. I mean, Ahaz and Abijah weren't just lost. They were belligerent against the things of God. Now, I want to share some. This is really important. I want to stop here and I want to be very careful how I share this because, you know what, I, I grew up in a household that wasn't supportive of my decision when I was 18 years old and I was born again and then ultimately called to the ministry. Now, now listen, my folks have since changed and amended and we're having a great relationship and, and we're spending time with them. And so thank God that he redeems the years. But, but it's really important. I'm talking to young people and I'm talking to young adults. I'm talking to older adults too, probably. That, that there's going to come a moment in all of our lives. Thank God for godly parents and godly environments and, and sold out Christians. And thank God if, if you're having babies in your household, that, that you're a sold out passionate Christian and your children are going to grow up in supportive Christian environments. Praise the name of the Lord. But let me tell you, if you grew up in a hostile environment, I'm telling you that you're not a victim to that environment. Come on, I'm going to remind you, because I've told these stories before, that when I was 18 and I got born again, I was the first one in my family tree. Now hear me, it's not that we didn't go to church. We went to some deadhead mainline church that you never heard the gospel in. 
God love them, but they never preach the gospel. So I'm not saying that I didn't at times get to some church. I'm just saying we weren't born again. We weren't spiritual. We weren't practicing the ways of God. And suddenly Kevin gets born again. And I'm telling you, nobody was jumping up and down in my household or in my environment supporting me in that decision. I had to set my alarm clock myself to get up on Sunday morning. Now hear me now, I'm just telling you, there comes a moment when you, if you're going to be a nation changer, people can't keep calling you, begging you to church. I mean, if someone's got to call you and say, come on, please, please come to the house of God, you're a nation changer. Why don't we just cut to the chase? No, you're not. If you can't overcome the environment you were born into, how are you going to overcome the world? Now, now again, I, I don't, I don't want to, to reflect something because, because certainly my po- folks were not Ahaz and Abijah. But, but if you don't have a perfect environment, and let me tell you, that can be helpful. Because it, it causes you to develop some spiritual toughness. It causes you to make decisions in your life that you have to stand with. Let me tell you, nobody was telling me on a constant basis what was right and what was wrong. I was the one that had to read God's word and I had to pray. And if I was going to make it, it was going to be just me and God on some days because ain't one nobody going to come call on me. Now, now again, I don't mean we don't encourage help and support one another. That's a wonderful thing. But the fact of the matter is, Hezekiah had the worst environment imaginable and he arises to become a nation shaker. Now, come on, we, we, we need to get this into our system. If you want to do something great for God, if you want to do something great in your life, then you're going to have to overcome your environment. I'm just feeling an anointing right here. Some, some of you are always looking for your environment to change in order for you to get a better spiritual walk. Come on now, your environment, maybe God's keeping you in the middle of Babylon, just like he kept Daniel in Babylon. He didn't deliver Daniel from Babylon. He just kept changing the administrations and Daniel found favor in Babylon because he served the one true and living God. And when they asked him to kneel to the false gods, he said, no, thank you, sir. And when he was caught, he went to a lion's den and he believed God and God closed the mouths of lions. I believe some of the greatest miracles you will ever see is when you're in a hostile environment. There was Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and and, and they wouldn't yield to the false gods either. And so they got thrown into the fiery furnace. That is not a good environment. But God moved in that toxic, imperfect environment. And they literally caught the attention of a nation. So, so I could ride this horse for a while, but I'll just let it go at that and say that it's important to understand that Hezekiah had an imperfect environment. There is no doubt that the pagan influences of his father affected that nation incredibly. Israel had been, or Judah, excuse me, had been led down a path of, of false gods. But it's interesting that Hezekiah faced something else that is eerily similar to what you and I face today in our nation. In uh, 2 Kings, if you want to turn there, I use a New King James Version, and and the translation wasn't quite what the Hebrew literally said, so I found another translation, and and it's put on the screen overhead. But in 2 Kings 17, verses 40 and 41, there's there's a statement that's made there uh, about Hezekiah and the culture that he was working in, or that he was beginning to exercise rulership in it, it says this, they, meaning Judah or the people of Judah, would not listen to God. However, but persisted in their former practices. In other words, that the people of Judah, uh, you know, even though there was some semblance of God there, they weren't listening and they wanted to continue in their idolatry. And I've underlined even, it says, while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. Are you getting that? What, who were they worshiping, it says here? It says they were worshiping the Lord. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and their grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Interesting. Let me give you just a quick 21st century interpretation. It's this. They went to church 
but they practiced the ways of the world. That's what that verse literally says. They, they went to church, but they practiced the ways of the world. Now, I understand that I'm from a different era. And, and for me to be culturally relevant, because I have my children, I'm grateful my children serve the Lord. And, and, and sometimes when I watch what happens within in Christian young people's lives, because I'm not of that era, it can stretch me. Amen? I mean, I'm just telling you, Christian rap will stretch me. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just says it just stretches me. I, I mean, some of the things that that are culturally relevant because I'm just 50 years old and, and, and I didn't grow up with that. And, and so it's hard for me to relate. But I believe that there can be things that can be used to relate to a new generation. I understand that you can't use a felt board forever. And those of you that grew up in Sunday school years ago know what I mean by a felt board. And you do understand that this is our new felt board. So I get it. I, I get that things have to change and you got to update and, 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 and you got to be relevant. But to be culturally relevant is not a license to be culturally compromised. I'm reading a book that's, that's kind of the, the springboard off of these messages. And it's a book by a guy by the name of Brian Edwards. He's from the United Kingdom. It's entitled Revival, A People Saturated with God. And he speaks of a revival in India. He has so many uh, interesting anecdotal stories. And, and he tells one story, and I just want you to listen to this. It's, it's about a missionary in 1905, just prior to a great outpouring or a great revival, 1905, in India. Listen, it says this. Nearly all the members of the church, men and women, were given to drinking. Some smoked ganja. Now, I don't know what ganja is, but all I can imagine is it probably gave you a buzz. That's that's. Otherwise, why would he have mentioned it? Some smoked ganja. Maybe some of you that have been redeemed from that know exactly what ganja is. But anyway, it's, he says, he writes, they quarreled, they fought, they lived immoral lives. They, listen to this, they shielded each other so that the missionary would not find these things out. It was almost impossible to get them to attend more than one service on the Sabbath day, and the weekly service was badly attended. The missionary often felt ready to give them up altogether. It seemed a hopeless situation. Now, I don't want to shave too close, but doesn't that sound familiar? You see, the problem doesn't start with the nation or the government or the schools or the economy. But you see, the issues of revival start with what happens in the house of God. You see, a lot of activity and hype of church may have its place and a value. Again, I'll just say, I want to be culturally relevant, but it can fool us into thinking that we are making this impact in our nation and in people's lives when in reality, we're hardly making a scratch. You see, folks, we can do all that we can do and we can have the technology and the big events and, and we can have the contemporary music and we can have the light shows and the, and the strobes and the black lights and we can do all of these kind of things. But, but, but somewhere along the way, we've got to call time out and ask ourselves the question why we cannot have a national day of prayer, but yet the Muslims can go to White House and put their mats down and face east to Mecca. See, I can't believe you would even say that. Well, somebody's got to start saying it. Somebody's, somebody's got to start asking some of these questions. Come on, is that not replacing the high things with detestable things? Listen, I got Muslim neighbors. They're great neighbors. They're wonderful people. It's America and they can do what they want, live like they want. They'll get no, they'll get no beef from me. But I'm just telling you, Allah is not my God. I was sitting at a board meeting on that apostolic network I told you about earlier. And it was shared with us that the hate speech law, and by the way, if you don't know what this is, we haven't heard much about it because they're doing their best to keep this under the radar. While we're all worried about oil spills and, and economies, the hate speech law is close to being enacted. I was told that it's about this close. You say, what does that mean? You think you ought to be able to say hateful things? Listen. There's coming a day if, if something doesn't happen that if I stand up here and I just read from Romans chapter one and I look at you lovingly, caringly with a smile on my face and with a sweet spirit. If I look at you and I tell you that homosexuality is wrong 
And those who practice such things, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you will go to hell if you practice such things. If I say that, and that law is enacted like it currently is in Canada, that people can come in here, police officers can come in here and arrest me. See, this isn't theory anymore. See, this is, this is where we're headed. See, listen, I, I mean, we can, we can do all that we're doing here, and, and yet the statistics on broken homes and divorce and adultery and immorality, and, and I could throw out all the statistics, and I'm, I'm, I'm overloaded on statistics. My question is, why isn't a dent being made in these situations? It's because God needs to move in His church again. We're having service. We're worshiping the Lord, but we're still serving our idols. Hezekiah knew this. He knew he had to repair the house of the Lord. It, now, listen, it wasn't just about godly leadership. It wasn't just about having a good king in the palace. It was about God saturating and dwelling his people again, moving in what we know to be the house of the Lord. Can I just share this with you? Darkness doesn't leave unless light shows up. Oh, I'm just going to let that soak in. Darkness will not leave unless light shows up. Things cannot be preserved unless salt shows up. And I've come to this conclusion that you and I cannot be salt and light in and of ourselves. I believe that the only way I can be light is when Jesus, who is the light, comes and lives in me. And his presence is in me. And he saturates me. And the light of God so fills me that it's his light that begins to come out from my life. And from your life as well. That's why we need his presence to saturate us. We have hundreds. Listen, and I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be an observer, not a critiquer, just an observer, but we have hundreds of Christian teenagers. At least they say they're Christian. And teachers, even in our public schools, our, our private schools as well. But why is there no distinguishable difference between the two, the Christians and the non-Christians? Why is it that we have to label everything in order to make sure everyone understands what's supposedly inside of us. It's the reason is because is, is what should be on the inside of the can isn't permeating out of the can. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have our issues. Folks, come on, let's just be... I'm not saying be frustrated. I'm just saying be honest for a moment. There's an answer to these things. But at least to be able to say, if we're not denting into these areas, if something isn't being challenged or changed or renewed or revived or redeemed or called back, then let's just be honest and say that somehow or another, it ain't happening in our lives like it could be happening. Now, again, it may not be all your fault, but it is our responsibility to begin to make these things right. So how do we repair the house? How do we repair the house? Well, I think it's going to take a philosophical shift in some of our lives and in most of our churches. Now, you've all heard this. There's an old saying that goes like this. If I keep doing the same thing over and over and I expect a different result, that's the definition of what? See, y'all know that. That's not scripture, but everybody knows it. Although, if I were God, I would have put that in the Bible probably, I, if you do the same thing over and over and over again and you expect a different result, though you're doing it over and over again, that's insane. Do you understand? We're insane. Because we think if I just keep doing over and over, I know what I'll do. I'll do it faster. I'll just do more of it. And nothing changes. You know the other phrase, if I want something I've never had, I'm going to have to do something I've never done. See, that's where our nation and our people's lives are at. And that's why they're falling apart. It's interesting because I read Gallup the other day and statistically, we've never had higher percentages of those who say they believe in God. You understand that 80 plus percent of Americans say they believe in God. When you, when you ask them if they are a Christian, 
And even if they're born again, we, we're still up in the 60 percentile range. Think about that for just a minute. 60 percent of the population says, according to a Gallup poll, that they are born again and they are Christian. Now, if that is true, and yet we face what we face in our nation, can we just say by simple observation, something ain't adding up? Something isn't adding up. I already mentioned to you that, that uh, this hate crime legislation is being prepared to be passed. And this is what I like about hanging around the guys I hang around. I was never, I, I never had the opportunity to participate in the civil rights movement. I was just, you know, I was just a little kid when civil rights was, was an issue in our nation. But I know enough of the history of civil rights to know that there were dedicated men and women that they would get in the basement of churches. And they would strategize in those churches as to where they would challenge certain laws that, come on folks, I know I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's the South, but we were wrong in what we did for years in this nation. We were wrong. And we just need to say we were wrong. I, I'll honor your heritage, and I understand there were other reasons people fought in the Civil War. I understand that, and I will honor your heritage. But there were some things that were just plain wrong in this nation, and it was a blight to our nation. And, and I will identify what I think is right and what I think is wrong. And these men and these women would, would, would sit in church basements and they would begin to strategize over where they would make a stand in order to nonviolently address laws that were ungodly and unrighteous. And they would literally look at each other and say, whose turn is it to go to jail? And whether you like Martin Luther King or not is of no consequence to me. He was the man that was used in order to be the point person, in order to, to push some of this. And, and we have his writings, and I've often thought about his writings that he had in jail, his jailhouse writings. And, and I just started to think about that whole venue. I'm telling you, there's, there's another issue that's coming. And as I was sitting in that room with these men of God, most of them you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. You might know one or two around the table. And all of a sudden... A somber spirit came into that room and we began to strategize if this legislation gets passed, where will the stand be made and which one of us at the table are going to go to jail? Because I'm telling you folks, if they take away our ability to say certain things are sin, then they're going to take away the gospel. And my Bible says in Acts 5.29 that there are those moments why I, I'll honor authority, I'll honor the king, I'll honor our president. And I'll say it out loud. It is President Obama. If you're disrespecting him, then you have no voice to speak to him. I'm just going to start speaking truth. I don't like all the policies that come out of that administration any more than some other people do. But he's our president and we respect him. President Obama. And the reason, and the reason the culture doesn't listen to us is because we, we tell off-color jokes and we, we, we listen to the, the vehement things and talk radio. And you know what? Talk radio is not the gospel. I mean, I'll listen to it too, but that listen, Rush Limbaugh isn't leading us to the promised land. Sean Hannity, I listen, I, politically, I might agree with him. I, you know, I don't know on every issue. I'm just simply saying it is time we got the, the partisan issues aside. You say, are you a partisan? Yes, I'm partisan. I'm partisan to God. I'm like Joshua of old when the angel of the Lord showed up. And Joshua said, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or their side? And the angel of the Lord said, I'm, I'm, I'm the commander of the hosts of heaven. Which what he meant was, I'm on my own side. And Joshua had at least enough sense to go, I'm with you. That's where I am. Don't try to drag me into the Republican camp. Don't drag me into the Democratic camp. I'm in the kingdom camp. And I'm going to speak truth to power no matter what the letter behind their name is. But I want you just to understand at this moment there are people strategizing as to where we're going to make our stand and somebody may go to jail. Somebody may go to jail. You say, well, we need to stop that. You're right. And the only way it's going to get stopped now is if God comes. And He begins to show up. Now what can we learn about all of this? about repairing. I'm going to give you some quick things and I'm going to run through this real, real fast. So if you're going to write it down, look at your hand right now and say, write fast. Move fast. 
What can we learn about repairing from Hezekiah? I believe these seven or eight things. Number one, I believe it's going to come from a new generation and perhaps the next generation. Revivals have historically started, believe it or not, on a lot of college campuses. From young people, college people. You know why I think God works through them? It's because they don't have anything to lose. I mean, what are they going to lose? Their Starbucks card? I mean, think about that for just a minute. What do they lose? I mean, I mean, their parents probably bought them their car and, you know, they're living on, you know, McDonald's cheeseburgers and they, they don't have anything to their name. I mean, they're barely, you know, just making it through school, working part-time jobs. But God uses them because they say, what are they going to do to me? They've got nothing to lose. Hezekiah was 25 years old. He'd already been challenged in his own household. And so he had to get a backbone early in his life. He had to make some choices as a young man. He didn't grow up in this affirming household to where he was, he was led. And most of the time, unfortunately, with our young people, we've got to drag them from service to service to service. No, he had to get his own carcass up, make his way to the house of God, and he had to pray his way through in his own bedroom as he heard his parents sacrificing his siblings to the demon god Moloch. Can you imagine? I imagine if you heard your parents sacrificing your brother, that might drive you to your knees. This was no game to Hezekiah. There was no entertainment venue. It wasn't about how much entertainment he could get. And, and I don't know how long to go to church because it's just not fun. It ought to be fun. Well, you know what? We're living in a day where the fun's ending and the serious issues of war are starting to take place. Now, I'm not saying older folks can't usher in and participate in a move of God. But folks, we got to we got to shake a generation mentality out of us that we got. And we've got to get that new generation mentality that says we need God afresh and anew in our midst. We got to detox. Literally, I've used this phrase. We got to detox off our current Christianity. And we've got to begin to get back to what God says is true and living and press into the deep. You know, there's a reason that we send young people to boot camp and to war. You send an 18-year-old off to the military and you send them to boot camp and literally our government brainwashes them. And they come out of Paris Island and they go over to Afghanistan and they just believe that when they go to war, they win. They're impervious to hurt, shots. Think about it. You couldn't get me. A 50-year-old, you couldn't do that to a 50-year-old. I'd look at that company commander or sergeant and I'd say, you're nuts. I ain't taking that hill, man. I know what happens on that hill. But you get an 18-year-old just out of boot camp and his sergeant says, we're taking that hill. They go, yes, sir, because they're impervious. Their mentality is, I, I am, you can't kill me. Isn't that what a teenager thinks? That's why they drive like madmen when you give them the keys to the car. Because they don't believe they're going to ever get in an accident. Their reflexes are too quick. They're the exception to the rule. The government knows that. That's why we send 18 and 19 year olds off to war. Because they run on the battlefield with this mindset that says, you can't take me out. That's the spirit that's got to get in the church. You may run us out of our buildings and you may run me out of the mall, but we'll find a catacomb somewhere. We'll go find a cave somewhere. We'll go pitch a tent on our little piece of property on John's Island and we'll bring in space heaters in the winter and space coolers in the summer, but we're still going to be the church. And no, we may not have the lights and the spin and the screen, and it may be a big felt board, or we could probably afford a whiteboard. But we got to get out of our current mentalities and begin to understand that the day has arrived. It's not like it could happen. It is coming and it is here. Where if God doesn't move, folks, I I I'm really concerned about what I'm leaving my kids. I got to go through this quickly. He repaired the doors, number two, real fast. He repaired the doors, it says in verse three of chapter 29. Whether it be the house of God, listen, or your house. The doors have to be repaired. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. It is time as the church, we close the door to some things. And we open the door to some other things. It is time we close the door 
to things that are defiling our households. They're defiling our lives. They're taking our passions away. Wesley said one time, he said, anything that diminishes my passion for Christ, to me it is sin. We've got to get there. I, I can't codify everything for you. God doesn't even codify everything for you. He just simply says to him who knows what is right and does not do it, to him it is sin. And we've got to get to the place where we've got to start asking ourselves, what am I letting in my house? And what do I need to close the door to? I'm just telling you, I was reading an article recently, and I'm going to really move fast, but I'm just going to say it because, because I know it's going to irritate somebody. But you know, they got the new Twilight deal going on. And I'm listening, listen, I'm listening and hearing churches that are using the Twilight movie in order to give spiritual principles to their young people. Because, listen to me, the vampire doesn't have sex with the girl. So there's abstinence, and because there's abstinence and they're waiting, we can use that in order to communicate to our young people the virtues of abstaining. Well, can I just say out loud, I want to say this, that I am against sex with vampires. I am. And I'm glad, I'm glad, hallelujah, she didn't have sex with a vampire. Be still my heart. Because, boy, that would have taken the culture right down the tubes. But you see, our problem is, it's not about having sex or not sex with a vampire. It's a vampire. It's occultic. It's demonic. I know, I know, I know. People will go, ah, oh, that's just pastor. You know what? We, we got to be an army. And we've allowed, we've allowed things to just on the edge exist too long. And it's time to close the door to some things. Come on, if you've got enough time to do that, then you've got enough time to open your door to some good things. Godly things. Our nation has, a nation has been tolerant to every religious view. We'll, we'll tolerate anything and everything. But let me tell you, tolerance is becoming acceptance. And I don't accept the fact that the false gods of false religions are things that we need to venerate. I don't accept that. I don't accept that satanic things are coming into my house. I don't accept it. You can call me a dinosaur if you will, but I'm here to change a nation. I'm not, I'm not here to embrace everything like a garbage disposal. I understand people think I'm just weird. I just, I, I, I'm living with it. But we'll, if, I can't, if we can't start pulling the pendulum back, this is my prayer. My prayer is if I say enough outlandish things out here, I can at least pull the pendulum back to maybe some sense of normalcy. I won't even get into verse 5, 29 verse 5. The Bible says that in order to restore the house, they had to carry out the rubbish. Do I have to illustrate this one? Probably carry out the rubbish. You know, they're just useless, pointless things, even in church that, that I'm just I'm, I'm working through. I'm asking myself, Lord, it is time we got back to the real deal. Even defiling things. I'm starting to ask myself, if I'm going to use movies in order to communicate spiritual precepts to you, then, then I'm going to make sure it's appropriate. I'm going to do my best. I realize not everybody's going to be on the same page and, and there's room for convictions here and preferences. But, but we got to start asking ourselves, have we let rubbish come in? I, I mean, we, we, we bring in self-help books and we bring in positive, you know, uh, speaking. And I'm not, they have their place. I want to be encouraged. But folks, just smiling and giving the 10 points to your best life at this moment is not exactly what we need. I don't know that we need our best life. What we need is a nation to repent. Come on now, I love everybody. But, but we got to start getting serious about this. Number four, got to value intercession. I'm just going to keep going. Verses 6 and 7. It says there that Hezekiah went back out and, and got the, uh, the incense burning again and, and, and uh, offered burnt sacrifices. And it's imagery of intercession. Jesus, you know what Jesus said. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And I'm just going to keep just putting it out in front of us as a church, man. We need, we need 75 people here on Sunday mornings before service starts to intercede. This is the answer. The answer isn't me preaching again, and, and I'm going to keep preaching, but that's not, just, that's not the answer. The answer is when we pray. We're going to keep doing vertical services. 
worshiping God and, and, and praying. Because that's our only, that's our only hope. And, and to restore the house, God's house has to become a house of prayer again. The most exciting time should be prayer time. And it's not to entertain you. It's to get in touch with Him. i got to keep going. Number five, the Bible says that Hezekiah, in verse 10, made a covenant with God. He held fast to God's ways. A covenant is no idle promise. It expressed a relationship and a confidence with God. And so Hezekiah was determined nothing was going to deter his allegiance. And so he made a covenant with God. Would you this morning make a covenant along with me to God and say nothing's going to deter our allegiance to Him. Nothing's going to deter our passion to Him. Nothing's going to deter our commitment that we're going to do our best to live His ways out. We, can we are right, guilty. We'll all do it imperfectly at times. But in as much as we understand and embrace, we're going to do our best, Lord, to hold firm Your covenant uh, in our lives. Hold fast to His ways. Number six. It says in verse 15 of that 29th chapter, it says that He gathered the brethren sanctified themselves. The word sanctified, I mentioned this before, it doesn't, it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. It really, literally means uncommon. That they decided they were not going to be just common everyday people. They were going to be uncommon people. And there are a lot of common Christians. And I don't, I don't want to be common Christianity. I want to be uncommon Christianity. That, that's what changes things. There's a lot of good things we do in church and, and even in our Christian life. But, but beneath it all, there's a worldliness. There's a commonness with the world. It, it saddens me that we are careless in our walk. There's triviality about holy things. There are a few uncommon people in the kingdom we're so worried about relating to the world that we've become the world. Folks, I'm not trying to relate to the world. I'm trying to relate to Jesus. I'm not trying to act like them. I'm trying to act like Him. I'm not trying to find a point of connection so somehow they can know that they're just like me. I want them to somehow see my connection with Him so they can aspire to be something or not. It's going to take uncommon devotion. And you know what? We won't be. I, at least I won't be. And as God gives me strength, we won't be like other Christians. We're not going to be like other churches. We're not going to be like other people. Revival comes to the uncommon. The uncommon. Number seven, we restore the place of worship. Verses 20 through 30. I can't read it to you. But let me just share with you. We got, our hearts got to go back to worshiping God. We're doing a good job in this area, by the way. But, but the things that bring His presence, worship brings His presence. Then number eight. The people were in unity and one accord. Listen to me, this is so important. I can sit here and scream and yell and sweat and, and it can entertain you and it can be a compelling message and all these things can happen at this moment. But if you don't pick up this burden with me, nothing will change. You, you Literally, you will become a voice crying in the wilderness. But if the people, and the Scripture says here in chapter 29, verse 36, it says that Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. And then in chapter 30, verse 12, a very similar passage, it says here that the hand of God was on Judah, the nation, to give them singleness of heart, to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. There was something that happened in that nation and in that people that caused them to gravitate to that vision and to gravitate to that happening to where the, all the people were in one accord and in unity. No one person is going to usher in revival. I don't believe revival is, is top down. I believe revival is probably grassroots up. If the church doesn't want it, don't worry. It won't happen. It won't show up. And just like Israel and Judah, we'll watch our nation slowly fade away. I've been on three different national phone calls with different pastors from all over this nation. And all three of these phone calls are telling me that if things don't change soon, we're going to lose what we've understood to be our, our rights and our abilities and our perspectives as Christian people. And there will be, buckle up, there will be Christian persecution in America. It's getting there. Don't think it's going to stop at just bringing down Ten Commandments and crosses and not letting you pray at graduation. Do you think it's going to stop there? I don't think so either. Right now, unbeknownst to us, I'm going to tell you, I mentioned this at prayer time, unbeknownst to us right now, there's a congressman 
who on a consistent basis reads Scripture on the floor of the Congress, the House of Representatives. He stands up and reads Scripture whenever he's given opportunity to take the mic. Listen to me. While you may say, well, praise God for that, what you don't know is that every time he does it, Congress, a, a, a predominant number of them begin to mock him as he reads the Scripture of both parties. A congressperson was giving a tour of the Congress to a group of pastors and literally came to a place as she it was a congresswoman as she was explaining one of the, uh, the, the, the sculptures or paintings there in the, the great House of Congress there in the rotunda. All of a sudden she stopped and she began to weep. And she said, if God doesn't move in our nation soon, you all need to know that the Philistines are coming to take us away. Imagine a sitting member of Congress weeping in the Congress. Preachers have told you this, and I've told you this for years, that there would come a day when, when if things did not change, we would see these things. Folks, I'm here to tell you, we're, we're no longer saying there's coming a day. The day is now. It's now. Today is the day. I'm not waiting for November. November elections are not the answer. Now, I'm going to go vote and do my civic duty, but I'm here just to tell you this, that if God doesn't get into this equation again, if the Lord doesn't show up, if his spirit does not blow on us again, changing the parties is not going to change our predicament. In 1980, there was a revival that took place, or an attempted revival, I guess I should say, on the campus of the college that I was a part of. The professor that was actually the head of the prayer meetings that began to birth revival was a man by the name of Dr. Wes Adams. Dr. Adams, when he was a teenager, had been swimming in a creek, and he'd actually dove into the creek, and it was a shallow end, and had hit his head in a certain way, and had paralyzed himself, basically from the from the torso down, and he was in a wheelchair. He'd gone to school and gotten all his degrees in theology, and it was Dr. Adams, and, and so he was a very learned man, and, and he had a motorized wheelchair, and, and he would be able to move it, you know, with those kind of stick shifts they put on that wheelchair. But he was paralyzed from the waist down, but he had a heart for revival. And, and, and so there were a few of us, in fact, there were actually seven of us at that time, that we decided we were going to pray because our campus needed a move of God. And so we, we gathered together, this professor and, and the seven of us, and we began to pray for revival. And, and, you know, we were just young, and we didn't know much. And a lot of the things we did, I'm sure, were silly and probably just comical before the face of God. But our hearts were right in that we wanted God to move on our campus. I'll never forget that there were moments we started to believe God and and, and I, I can begin to picture it in my mind so vividly even now that, that two of us would get next to Dr. Adams and, and we'd put one of his arms around our shoulder and the other arm and we would lift him out of his wheelchair with his, with his feet just kind of dangling like that. And we would pray and cry out to God and say, Oh God, restore his legs. Restore his strength. God, you can send revival and this is not too big a deal for you. And we would cry out like that and and, and, and Dr. Adams, you know, bless his heart. And he said, guys, I, I feel the presence of the Lord. But at this, at this point, there's, there's no healing. And, and I'm just sharing you these things because all of this took place on a Friday night at 1030 at night. That's when we began the prayer meeting. See, we had this mentality was that you needed to pick the most difficult, obscure time. Because that would show God just how serious we were. So what better time for a college kid than Friday night at 1030? I mean, that was cutting into definite date time. I mean, right there. And, and so we would do this. And listen, God began to move, though. And, and at its height, and it lasted for several years, at its height, there was up to, you know, 100 plus, getting up to 200 kids that would cram in to Smith Religion Building, room 123, 1030 on a Friday night, and cry out to God. Most amazing thing. But then God began to move, and, and, and I'll never forget when God began to move, and, and He began to do things outside of the box of our denomination, I, I remember inside of me there came a crossroad where I had to ask myself, am I really in this thing or not? Because if I go this direction, I ain't going to fit here. And at that time, I decided, you know what, I, I'm just going to stick with what's safe. I'm just going to stick with what fits in the denomination I was a part of. 
And I decided that I was going to step out. And literally, I missed, I missed a move of God. It, it took a decade for me to get back to the place where God could talk to me. And I was baptized in the Holy Spirit a decade later. But I realize now that he was giving me opportunity many more years before that. As I was thinking about that, one of my favorite movies is uh, Braveheart. The reason Braveheart's just an interesting movie to me is because it's the concept of freedom. And I'll never forget on one of the, 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 the portions of Braveheart where the would-be king, whose last name was DeBruce, the would-be king betrays William Wallace. And there's a moment when Wallace runs him down, doesn't know who he is, and he, and he tears him off his horse, and he takes off his helmet, and he sees his friend, DeBruce, there. And something happens in, in William Wallace's eyes, and it's the eyes of betrayal. That he sees his friend, whom he thought he could trust, who actually betrayed him into the hands of the evil king. And the story goes on, and eventually DeBruce goes back to his dad, and he looks at his dad, and his dad had manipulated and done some things in order to, to politically secure his son's future kinghood. And his son looks at his dad and he says, what have you done? And he says, I have, I have worked hard to see that you become king. I've got you lands, and those before me have bequeathed lands and power to you so that you could be king. I'm not going to have you run off to some crazy war with some crazy man and die and lose what we are passing down to you. And I'll never forget to Bruce as he looks at his dad and he says these words. He says, I was on the wrong side of history this time, I want you to know I will never be on the wrong side again. And I thought back to when I missed revival so many years ago. I was on the wrong side of God's history in 1980. But I want you to know I'm not going to be on the wrong side again. I believe that God is preparing to open up the windows of heaven and pour out His Spirit upon His church in unprecedented ways, not so we can just grow our churches into these behemoths so we can feel better about ourselves, but He is literally wanting to turn a nation around if we'll hear His voice. He's wanting to salvage the next generation because our kids will be offered up to Moloch. I don't mean in the same way maybe as here, but I'm just telling you, the spirit of Moloch and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Philistines, that spirit is all over our land. And it is time, it is time that Judah, the church, it is time we arose again and we repaired the house. And we may not be able to stop America's ultimate collapse, but it doesn't have to happen on our watch. Do I love America? You bet I do. I believe it's probably the last great hope before Jesus comes. That God could do something in us yet still. If we would get our hearts turned toward him. I've been praying like a madman that God would break the deluding spirit over our leaders. That he would break the deception. That he would speak to our leaders in the night. That just like he did with Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and other, other pagan leaders, that God, you would speak to them in the night and you would trouble their sleep. That's the only way we're going to beat back the evil counsel that everyone gets. Is when God moves in and when they're asleep, he begins to counsel them. The only way that's going to happen is when we pray. When we pray. Happy Fourth of July. Hey, stand with me, will you please? Stand. Everybody's standing.